Hello, welcome to Ethics Today. This is a program dedicated to listening to people who can give us an informed perspective on some of the things that are going on in the world today so that we might act in a more ethically responsible manner. And today's guest is Dr. Ben Wedrow. He's an emergency room doctor at Gunderson Clinic, a clinical professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Dr. Wedrow has provided medical consultation at several major international sporting events, including the Winter and Summer Olympics, the FIFA World Cup, and the Pan Am Games. So Ben, thank you so much for taking time to visit today. Thanks, Rick. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I wanted to talk to you about how the different sports leagues are handling this pandemic, because it's been fascinating to me to watch what's going on as we see the resumption of baseball, basketball, uh, and, and other sporting events, and, and the, in the impend, impending return of the NFL. Um, and it's, it's so clear just from the casual observer that these leagues are handling uh, the, the virus and uh, the distancing requirements and everything else in very different ways. And I'm just wondering how things look from your perspective as somebody who has been a medical consultant in the sporting world and is also still a practicing uh, physician who's uh, seeing patients coming in with COVID in the emergency room. So um, if, if you would like, I'd like, what are you seeing as you're watching the return of sports? Uh, I think that we have a problem in the United States because we're trying to open up public events when we have a virus that's not well contained. That's different than what they did in Taiwan when they brought baseball back uh, or in Europe when they brought their uh, professional football or, or soccer back. Uh, they had the virus well controlled and that allowed um, the people in charge of their sporting leagues to be uh, a little bit more able to open relatively normally. So for example, Taiwan um, opened up with just players initially um, when they had the, uh, the virus seemingly under control and only brought fans back marginally uh, when they even got better. In the uh, football leagues across Europe, as the countries got the virus contained, um, not eliminated, but contained, they were able to bring back their football leagues um, relatively quickly without fans. But again, it involved a lot of testing of the players and making certain that the players were well behaved off the field so that you would end up having um, uh, 1,700, 1,800 uh, players tested a day and they'd have no positive results. Compare that to the United States where- well, Could I just hold on for a second there because I haven't been following what's going on in Europe or Taiwan at all. So have- um, Well, you're not a sports fan then, are you? Yeah, right. But, but so you're saying they had this return to sports and they've been able to do it fairly successfully. Have there been- some teams or some leagues that have struggled that have had some positive cases that have had to deal with that? or I don't think so. I think really? throughout Europe, again, uh, we're talking about the leagues like uh, the English Premier League, uh, La Liga out of Italia, Series 1 out of France, um, the Spanish League have all opened up and, and played their, their schedules um, and seem to have done all right with it. Um, if yeah. you're a, a soccer fan or if you want a fan of any sport, you, can be wa you could have been watching games for the last three months uh, on, on Fox Sports or, or NBC Sports or, or, and, and be able to see that. Taiwan baseball was playing 
in March uh, at three o'clock in the morning, um, and, and in front of nobody, but uh, they were they were playing their games. Um, their virus load in the country was much lower than the United States. Imagine now that uh, England or the United Kingdom is getting upset and tightening down because they had 900 cases yesterday. We had 50,000. Um, we had 50,000 in the United States yeah. yesterday? Yeah, new cases. Wow. So um, when we talk about the scope of the disease, it's not well controlled in the United States. So trying to open up uh, a group of people coming together to play a sport in close contact is like opening up the schools. Um, you can try your best, but the odds are you're going to fail unless you do what the NBA and the NHL have done, the hockey and basketball leagues, which is bring your, your players and, and people into a closed situation where no one can come and go. Um, and they, they've done that in, in the bubble. So, for example, um, you come in, you stay quarantined for two weeks. So presumably uh, you weren't infected because you were tested ahead of time, you weren't infected. Um, and after two weeks, you can't be because the virus is now done if you had it um, for being infected. Um, because the incubation time is somewhere between, you know, four to five days, but the maximum incubation time for the illness is 14. Right. So if you, and that's where the two weeks comes from. Most people will, will show uh, symptoms within a couple of days, maybe up to four or five, but as far out as two weeks, maybe. Um, that, and two weeks is maybe two days longer than it should be. It might be 11 days, 12 days, doesn't matter. If you keep someone isolated for two weeks and they're not sick, then they don't have the virus. So then they can, be, they can enter the bubble because they come in virus-free. And if no one else can come into the bubble, presumably no one's gonna get sick. And that's what you're seeing in, in the NHL where they had um, two cities, Toronto and Edmonton, where they're playing the games uh, that they're playing. Uh, the players and the coaches and everyone else affiliated with the happening of the game have to stay in, in the hotels that are designated. They get on the designated buses and they don't leave that, that area. So no one gets in contact with them. How difficult is that though? Because we don't talk about only players and coaches, but it means that the locker room attendants, the people that clean the locker rooms, the people that make the ice, the cameramen, uh, the people who deliver food, uh, the, the doctors and chiropractors and physical therapists and trainers who look after these people are all isolated. And they may be isolated for three or four months. Um, that's a big commitment to make certain that the, the sport will go on disease-free. Compare that to Major League Baseball, where they're traveling from city to city on public transportation. Um, and if not on public transportation, at least they're not. If you have a bus driver who's driving you from the hotel to the, the stadium, um, they're not staying with the team forever. They're going home to their family and nor would it be appropriate for them, for you to tell them, uh, you can't go anywhere for, for three months. Um, who's going to pay them not only in money, but in, in loss of companionship with family and friends. So it's totally different situation. Yeah. It's really been remarkable to see the, the huge problems that have confronted major league baseball, which seems to me to be relying primarily on the, on the notion of personal responsibility, that each team kind of, they have guidelines, but each team gets to make, has wide latitude on what decisions they make. And even watching the game, you see, like you'll see one player coming to bat with a mask on and other players not. You see managers, some with a mask hanging off their ear, other ones that are in the dugout wearing a mask. And it seems to be 
to be up to every individual to do what they want to do, whereas the NBA has a 113-page rule book with <laughs> very specified exactly what every person will do, um, and they're monitoring it very closely. And these seem to be vastly different approaches to the return of sports that in some ways I think mirrors different approaches that like people and organizations are having in our country. And, and if you think about it, um, baseball would be much better uh, attuned to being a sport to be played safely because you're not in much close contact except for an occasional tag play and on base or at the plate. Right. The players are, are spaced apart. Um, and yesterday, Major League Baseball came out with much more restrictive rules. Um, you have to wear a uh, face covering in the dugout and everywhere else you need to be except on the field, except I was watching a game yesterday and there was a player in the dugout not wearing a mask. Um, and uh, is there a, a magic monitor that comes and takes them off the field and says you can't play anymore or you're kicked out? I don't think so. Um, the issue always is how much these are, these professional athletes are, are, grown, are grown men, grown women, because you have got the WNBA playing as well in a bubble. Um, and they should take personal responsibility, not only for themselves, but also for their family members so they don't get sick. The idea that they're going out to bars and clubs and partying is difficult. More worrisome, though, is that uh, when one team uh, became infected, the Miami Marlins became infected, um, the players decided uh, on their opposing team, the Phillies were, said, were asked to vote whether or not they should play the game, knowing that other members uh, in the stadium were infected, and they voted to play. That's not something that should happen. That should be an edict from, from the league that says, if we have teams that are infected, they won't play. Um, I don't know what the magic number is for how many people should be infected before you call, call a game off. I yield to people with better knowledge. But it seems to me that just like um, in countries that have a national policy uh, for COVID control, um, those countries do better than those countries who decide regional control is best. Um, and the only major country that's doing regional control is the United States. Uh, I guess Brazil's doing regional control, Mexico's doing regional control, or no control at all for those countries. And they have huge numbers as well of, of infected people. So if you don't have a national policy and you leave it to districts to decide what the right thing is to do, it's no different than baseball or football saying, this is what we're gonna do and this is what we recommend, but we'll leave it up to the team to decide. And the team very much is based on who the star is and who's the leader in the clubhouse to set the tone of, of behavior. If you have somebody that's strong-willed and said, this is what we're gonna do um, and we're gonna do it right, um, hopefully the team doesn't get infected. If the leader in the clubhouse um, disdains that, maybe the team's at higher risk. Well, sports, often serves as an analogy to uh, other areas of our lives. And, and what we're seeing here in, in sports, I think, is analogous to the um, uh, different ways of, of going back to school in the fall. So we have universities and, and, and schools that are starting up now in the next, uh, next few weeks. And uh, we're kind of, I think, witnessing, as we watch Return of Sports, we're witnessing probably in, in the sports what's going to be happening in our, in our schools and universities. Uh, and 
unfortunately, it seems to me like uh, like most of the most of our schools are reopening along lines that are very similar to what Major League Baseball is doing, which doesn't does not bode well for what's going to happen in September. It hasn't worked well for the first couple of weeks. Maybe the, the Major League Baseball can learn and, and on the fly they can change the rules to, to tamp down spread of the, the coronavirus. I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not hopeful for that because, uh, or optimistic because the teams aren't being isolated. They're, they're flying, they're in public. Even if the planes are private planes, they're going through airports. They're, uh, they're using public bathrooms when they're in the airports, uh, presumably. Um, they have uh, transportation drivers who aren't isolated. They're staying in hotels that aren't just theirs. They're, they have to mingle with, with the general public. And there's nothing wrong with mingling with the general public except in times of, of uh, pandemic. In schools, it's much more difficult as well. I don't understand how the schools can open realistically um, when there's so many people coming from such diverse areas into one building. Um, even if you space the kids far apart, you saw the photos out of uh, Georgia where the hallways were packed with kids changing classes. Um, even if the classes had social distancing and fewer kids in them. And those kids weren't wearing masks. Uh, and some school boards have said that uh, they can't enforce mask wearing uh, and it's personal responsibility. And yet those are the same schools that uh, enforce uh, dress codes. Shorts are too short, um, t-shirts are vulgar. They somehow are, have the ability to do that for a dress code, but not for a mask. Um, unfortunately, masking uh, and social distancing are the only way really to prevent spread of the pandemic um, that we have right now because we don't have a vaccine. Um, and for administrations uh, in education to not take that lead, I think it's just wrong. And I think it puts kids at risk and their families at risk. Well, we've, we've seen countries uh, that are very densely populated like uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea that, um, that have a very high compliance with masking that still use public transportation. They're still in dense crowds on, on city streets and um, they're going back to school and so forth. Um, and they've been very successful. Is that only because of masking or is it masking plus testing? Are they more aggressive with contact tracing and that sort of thing than we are? Maybe they're doing less testing, so we don't know um, how many people are infected, but their hospitals aren't as full and their ICUs are not as full and their death rates aren't as high. Um, but we know that masking helps. Uh, we also know that being outside is much safer than being inside. So when we saw the George Floyd protests in this country, we didn't have huge spikes because people were outside. That doesn't mean being outside is safe. Well, it is safe, but it isn't, um, it does not give you special immunity. But when you're in a closed space with air that's being recirculated, um, that gives the potential for infection to spread. Remember, COVID is a virus and it spreads by, aer by droplet or by aerosol. Mm -hmm. And uh, those droplets stay in the air for a while. Uh, the longer you're in a closed space, um, the, without much ventilation, um, the more at risk you are. You wear the mask for two reasons. The first reason is if you're infected, um, you don't spread the infection to somebody else. And to a lesser extent, because of the types of masks that people are wearing, it prevents you from getting infected. They're not 
N95 respirators, which filter out most of the, the small particles in the air. But, they're, but cloth masks are very good at preventing you from spreading disease to someone else. And they're very effective in that way. Because what I remind people is if you're a surgeon and you're wearing a, a surgical mask and you cut into somebody and open up their belly and your, your face is you know, six inches from, from somewhere an inch from, or a foot from somewhere for 20 minutes and somehow they're not getting infected, you know, um, that works really well. And somehow the, the surgeon can survive being in the operating room for eight, 12 hours at a time in some operations and not passing out because of the lack of uh, uh, oxygen. Um, masks are safe and, and they're easy to use. They're inconvenient. Some people don't like the way they feel, but they work. And so going back to the question, the, um, in, in Asia, wearing of masks has been a long time uh, norm, either to prevent disease or because of the smog they have in their air. People have worn them. So wearing them in a pandemic is no big deal. For us, it's a huge deal because we've never worn masks in North America. And now we're forced to do something new and people don't like being told what to do, even though it's the right thing. Um, have you been following at all uh, the, the NFL and what their plans are? Do you think that they're gonna be able to have a successful season with the precautions that they are taking right now? Um, I just don't know. Again, they're gonna be traveling from place to place. Some people, um, some players are going to stay in the, in the team hotel, some are going to stay with their family. Some are going to opt out completely and not play at all. Um, I think that in the locker room, they'll do fine because they'll space their players apart and the training rooms will be fine because they'll wash them down and do whatever they need to do, just like going to the hospital. Um, I don't know what happens, though, when you go on the road um, and you use public and, and you're in bathrooms that are being shared by people not on your team. Um, what happens when um, you go stand in line at Starbucks at the airport or if they're even allowed to do that? I don't know how, I think it's the, the travel and not the, the, the play that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I think that once they're ensconced in their training camp, they're fine. I think that once they're in, um, in the game situation, they're fine, but it's the movement in between. What the NBA and the, NF and the NHL have done is they put everybody in, into a travel bubble. It, right. They don't see anybody from the outside, but that's not true in, the, in Major League Baseball or the NFL. And, and, and even them, the NBA doesn't use uh, locker rooms for showers. The players shower when they get home to their own hotel room, right? They're, right. So they're really, even within the bubble, they're limiting that kind of contact. And from what I've heard, I might be wrong about this, the NFL is doing things like putting up plexiglass shields between lockers, which seems like, I, it just seems um, absurd to think that they're gonna try to limit spread of the, of the virus by these kind of half measures. Well, I think the plexiglass shields are a good thing, but the question is what's the airflow in the locker room? You know, ideally you want a negative pressure room where all the air in the room gets circulated and, and filtered out. But I don't know what they can do in, in pre-existing locker rooms in older stadiums or, or if it can be retrofitted, uh, I just don't know. Um, remember, it's all about those little droplets in the air right. and, and where that air goes. Um, the air can go up and around plexiglass shields, but it's great, you're not gonna spit on people. <laughs> um, you're not gonna sweat on people in your locker room. So you're not going to get direct contact that way, but um, 
I don't know what's going to happen um, without solid uh, without solid airflow, and and once they're out on the field, they're going to be in close contact with with their uh, with their player with their teammates and the opponents. I do not know what the exposure potential is because of that. I don't think anyone knows because we've not had football. Um, basketball sort of has contact, but not as much. Um, so um, at the NFL gets to be a, uh, a guinea pig. I want to ask you also about testing. Uh, the, one of the things they're doing in sports is they're testing players every day. And I think, are they doing that in every league? In the United States, anyway, as far as you know, I think they are. They're doing daily tests or every other day tests. Um, that's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because we still have places where it takes a week or two weeks to get the results back, but players can get it done right away. Well, and that makes me wonder, like, if if we're going back to schools and and universities, I'm planning to go back, you know, teaching in a in a couple of weeks here and. Um, like if we're not getting tests back from students or staff members who um, who have symptoms, and we're not getting the test back for say two weeks, um, that seems that does us no good at all. Um, we might as well, well just be treating people with symptoms, right? Well, there, there's not a lot of treatment again. If, if, remember, many people are asymptomatic with, with the COVID infection. So if you have symptoms, and remember the symptoms can be, are the symptoms of any other virus. There's no magic way of knowing whether you have a cold or COVID. Because if you've got a runny nose or a cough or sneezing, or if you've got vomiting or diarrhea, or if you've got a sore throat, um, that could be COVID, it could be strep, it could be just a virus infection. That you can't look at a person uh, in the office or in the emergency department and say, this is what you've got and this is what you don't have. Um, so many people are getting tested for COVID. My bias is from a, a logical standpoint is if I'm testing you for COVID, you have it till I say you don't. So you should go home and isolate um, because otherwise, why am I testing you? Um, so when the test comes back negative, great. Then you can then go on with, with your life and you had a virus other than COVID. Um, but if I can't give you the results, I have to presume that you have COVID till proven otherwise. And we do that in a lot of ways in medicine. We um, when we're looking for people with heart disease um, and they come in with chest pain, we treat them like they're having a heart attack till we prove that they haven't had one. Um, when people come in with an infection and we don't know what the type of antibiotic, what type of bacteria it is, we treat them broadly for the type of bacteria that might be out there. And then we hone down and, uh, to the right specific antibiotic when we get their blood cultures back. But that might take a couple of days. So um, it makes sense that if I think you've got uh, a viral infection, and we're worried, you and I together, when we come, that we should test for COVID, then you should go home and isolate. Uh, so if you test a teacher, and they should go home and isolate. And realistically, that means everybody they touch should go home and isolate. So, but you can't do that, because that would shut down the school. But what happens when you have a, a kid that tests positive, like didn't, they did in Georgia, that, that there was a second grader that tested positive the first day. His class gets, uh, quarantined for two weeks. But does the teacher get quarantined? Well, the teacher was in the break room, so does that mean all the teachers in the break room at the time get quarantined? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I admit, I think it's very difficult. Um, if you don't have quick turnaround testing um, to, to give direction to people so they can live their lives. 
Interestingly, not all tests are made the same. Um, and so, for example, the University of Wisconsin just got a $32 million grant from the federal government for testing. And it's going to be used to test people in the dorms every two weeks. The bad news is that the tests work best when they're done every two days um, to make sure that there, there aren't any misses. And so people are going to be using the tests on campus and they're going to be using them inappropriately so the data you get back and the results may be useless. Um, is that because of the high degree of false negatives, especially early in infection? Uh, what I've heard is that there can be up to, like early on in the infection, um, there can be up to 50% false negatives. I don't know the percentage, but you're right. You need to have a certain viral load to turn the test positive. It's no different than a pregnancy test. You have to be, I can't, your pregnancy test will be negative in the first week or so that you're, you're pregnant because you don't have enough hormone to turn the test positive. You have to be pregnant for a while till the test turns positive. So if you test too early, you'll get a false negative which means you're really positive, you're really pregnant, but the test is negative. It's a false negative. Uh, similarly with virus tests, you have to have a certain virus load in your body to turn the test positive. If you test too early and the virus hasn't duplicated enough, it's not gonna turn the test positive. So some people that you know have COVID, you know, they come into the emergency department and they can't breathe and they're short of breath and their oxygens are low and their x-ray looks like COVID and you do the COVID test and it's negative and you admit them to the hospital because they have to be in ICU, and a day later they're tested positive and no one's surprised at all. Right. So you have to interpret the test based on um, what's going on with the patient. But if the patient's asymptomatic, then you have to test more than once. And every two weeks isn't good enough for the University of Wisconsin, and yet that's what they're gonna do. How they deal with the results, I'm uncertain. How you're gonna deal with the results of a turbo, I'm uncertain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just don't know. And I think, you know, so much of it, um, we're going to have to figure out as we go. And, um, and, and that's why, that's why I wanted to talk to you about sports, especially with what's going on with Major League Baseball, because it seems like that's what baseball has been doing. And, um, and we've seen you know, just two days ago, having to revise the rules. Um, so I'm pretty sure we'll be doing that. Um, just one last question I wanted to ask you as um, are there are there any symptoms that you're seeing more than others when as pe the people that come in to the emergency room I imagine they come in with all kinds of different symptoms and and you suspect they might have COVID because as you said it could be anything that you typically show from a virus but are there some symptoms that are more common among those who eventually test positive there are. So people who come in looking like they have pneumonia, they have cough, fever, and shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are the major things you'll see. You'll, you'll read uh, or see on the news about the loss of smell or the loss of taste. Yep. Um, and that's true, um, but it's a self-reported uh, problem. So up to the studies say up to 87% of people with COVID will have loss of taste. Uh, but it's self-reported, but when they're tested objectively, it's down more like 35%. Oh, really? So still, yeah, but still, a third of people who have COVID lose their taste. So if you've lost your sense of smell or lost your taste, or things just don't taste right, and you have any other symptoms, uh, we'd be very concerned that you have COVID. But the things that matter to us the most are the things that are gonna kill you. And the things that are gonna kill you are your lungs. 
Um, if you've got vomiting or diarrhea, you know, you could have food poisoning, you have, could have gastroenteritis. But, um, you know, 20% of people who have nausea and vomiting as their primary complaint have COVID. Or, no, people who have COVID, 20, uh, 15 to 20% of their primary complaint was nausea and vomiting. Um, and again, it's just how the virus affects your body. But the big thing we care about, at least in my brain, in the emergency department, is what's going to kill you. And what's killing them is, is their breathing. And uh, we're learning more about how to use oxygen more effectively, how not to put people on ventilators if we don't have to, um, and the different options that we have. And I think that's why you're seeing the death rates go down a little bit on people who have COVID infections who are admitted to the hospital, is we're getting smarter over the last six months. So if, if somebody's at home, they have, they have some of these symptoms, but they're not terribly severe. They have, they, they say, they say they have diarrhea or they have congestion or, or some, some nausea, but it's not really severe. Is there any precautions they should be taking? I assume you don't want everybody coming to the emergency room as, as soon as they have some mild symptoms, but- We, we don't. Are there, are there precautions you should take that are different than if like you might just have the onset of a common cold? Um, no, not really. What you need to do is isolate yourself. You know, wash your hands really well. Don't touch your face and wear a mask if, you're, if you have to be near other people. Um, those are the things that we can do to prevent the spread of any virus. You know, if, you're, if you're sick with a, a runny nose and a, and a cough, you tend not to go to work. You stay home. Uh, and you don't cough in other people's faces when you're at home. And you, you work hard at washing yourself and keep, you know, you, you do that yourself. When you're sick, you say, stay away from me. And your family stays away for a day or two and, and you get better. If you're concerned that you might have COVID and you're not having difficulty breathing or shortness of breath or chest pain, call your family doctor or call the hospital and they may arrange for you to be tested as an outpatient in a drive through center. So you may not even have to touch somebody. Um, you, uh, testing can be arranged where you drive up in your car, if you have a car, and uh, someone will put the swab up your nose and uh, you go home. And uh, But if you're having shortness of breath, if you're having difficulty breathing, if you're having chest discomfort, you should not ignore those things and, and you should go to the hospital. But please wear a mask when you walk up to the front desk and tell them that that's what you have. Don't hang out in the parking lot for a while and uh, don't uh, visit with people on the way in. Don't stop and, and get a cup of coffee at McDonald's on the way in. Go straight to the hospital, go to the desk, put your, have your mask on and say, this is why I'm here. Um, that means that if you do have an infection, you're not going to spread it to people on your way in. And right. you're not going to infect the people at the front desk. And even at the front desk, there's plexiglass shielding and the people are wearing masks and, and, and face shields. But still, it's polite. Well, thank you. This is a fascinating discussion. I'm so glad that, that we were able to do it. And uh, maybe we'll talk again um, because we'll see how long this goes on and and um, I'm very interested especially with the NFL season to see if they're actually able to go through the whole season so maybe maybe another time this fall we'll come back and talk about sports and and COVID again. That would be great. Thank okay. you. Yeah thanks Ben.